Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 161, where I had a chat with Auckland-based music journalist and freelance writer Graham Reed. Graham is one of the guys that's been around doing this for a long time. He's one of my, uh, I guess one of my heroes, one of my inspirations, a guy that I was reading when I was a teenager and I was thinking, man, it'd be cool to write about music. He was one of the people that I was reading. He had a fantastic column in um, the Real Groove magazine and he was a staff writer for the Herald in Auckland and he covered music for the Herald in Auckland pretty much through the 1990s. So now he he runs a fantastic website uh, called Elsewhere where he posts not just music music things but some of his travel stories and and well we talk about all of this in, in the conversation Graham also wrote about politics he's written about a lot of different things but um what was interesting to me I mean we've met a couple of times before um what was interesting to me about having this conversation was that he worked in music journalism when we actually had music journalism in New Zealand I mean he he was taken overseas you know he did the junket like he flew he tells stories about flying to England to see an Oasis concert, being flown to see Oasis and then put on a plane to come back and write about it. He has interview stories of actually doing phone interviews with people like Miles Davis. So uh, these are, yeah, there's some monumental stories here and um, and I'm a fan of Graham's writing and uh, it was nice to, to get his story down on tape. Um, this was recorded in January in Auckland when I was up there for a couple of weeks. So there's a reference to him going to see Laneway. Uh, so if you're wondering what that random references um, that's why and we recorded this in in a big heat wave and we we're in Graham's house so you might hear the fan going in the in the background uh, hopefully that's not too distracting for you um, yeah I loved having this conversation with with Graham um, thanks to tea leaf tea la pity chocolat and yeasty boys and I hope you enjoy me and Graham Reed having a bit of a chat about music writing I guess I've been aware of your work for a long, long time. I guess the first question is, and we've met a couple of times and um, and interacted online and so forth, but I guess the first question for me is is really um, where you came from and how you came to music. Like, how you, growing up, how did you find it or how did it find you? Um, well, I'm old, so I think you need to say that straight away. I'm 67, uh, and so you know, I'm I'm of a generation which actually remembers listening to radio before television. Right. Uh, I was born in Scotland, so I grew up listening to Scottish music there. Um, and when I say Scottish music, you know, I I don't mean traditional Scottish music. I just mean like my parents played musical songs and things mm. like that. Uh, we moved backwards and forwards to New Zealand over a number of times and finally settled here. But, you know, my, my growing up period was that those maybe three or four years, my recollection, three or four years before the Beatles, for example. Mm. Uh, I have an older sister um, and, you know, she had Elvis Presley 78s. Um, I remember re- um, hearing Bill Justice, that raunchy you know, yeah, it's yeah. instrumental, which is the one that got George Harrison into the Beatles. Mm. Apparently, he could play mm. raunchy. Um, Cliff Richard, "Voice in the Wilderness." You know, I remember playing that over and over and over. Just this most beautiful song. Um, but, but you know, at that time, of course, radio was so different, and there was not that balkanisation we have these days. So, radio would play everything, mm. uh, and I grew up listening to. You know, Big John and Johnny Cash songs as much as you would hear, you know, white bread pop music. But then, of course, you know, I'm of that generation. Bang, Beatlemania hit. 
You know, they played in Auckland on my 13th birthday. You know what I mean? Isn't that the most perfect did you, symmetry of things? Did you go? No. <laughs> well, that would have been the most perfect symmetry if you'd been. <laughs> I have a story about that. Many years later, and I'm talking only about 10 years ago, my older sister said to me, you know that Dad had two tickets for that show? And I oh, said, don't. what? She said, yeah. Um, but he gave the secretary in the office because he was trying to impress her. Mm. <laughs> kidding me! Um, so no, I didn't see that. Um, and I think that's why probably my father bought me some tickets to see a guy called Normie Rowe, oh, who's yeah. a little-known Australian entertainer, whom I met in recent, you know, not that long ago, and he's a lovely guy. Yeah. Um, but I saw him play at the Crystal Palace with... Um, now, the chicks were there, and I think it might have been Killing Floor or the Underdogs or somebody like that. Really extraordinary group. I just remember going there and going, Jesus Christ, what the hell is this? You know? um, so that, you know, that, that's my introduction to music. Mm. You know, I grew up with music all around me. My dad was a musician. Uh, he had Roy Reed's Columbians, who played here in the late 1920s, early 30s, before he left and went to Scotland and met my mum because he was from a Scottish family who grew up here. Mm. Um, and so it was just like music was everywhere in my life. And it just, I mean, it just connected with me. So I was hearing um, my dad play Louis Armstrong, which it just became part of my DNA. But my dad would come home at lunchtime from work and he would lie down and he'd listen to Hello Dolly and with the Beatles back to back. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of household. Had all those show tunes. Mm. I talked to Harry Lyon recently. We talked about... South Pacific. Oh, yeah, he loves that. Yeah, yeah and, you yeah. know, West Side Story, all that yeah. sort of stuff that I knew. And I was just utterly seduced by all of that music. Yeah. And it didn't matter where it came from. Yeah. So for me, you know, Joe Tex working in a coal mine mm. and the Supremes Baby Love was just on exactly the same plane as, you know, the pretty things. Mm. Don't bring me down and my favourite... Garage well, band, in, a, in a funny kind of way, we're sort of back to that now via things like Spotify and that it, people, sure. it just, you either curate yourself or it just lines up for you. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good and bad things being said about that. But I feel like the period right in between, which is essentially when you and then later myself get into writing about music, that's where the sort of a lot of the snobbery <laughs> kind well, of came in, isn't it? People are terrible music yeah. snobs. And I, yeah. I really have no time for that at all. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, you know, before we you know, mm. turn on the microphone, we're having a beer around the corner, and we agreed that you know that you can go and see Harry Connick Jr. and you can go and see what Jay mm. Maskus or some garage band, mm. and they will actually appeal to different parts of you. And you know, yeah. I never thought that all this stuff was mutually exclusive. Yeah. I do not understand why people could be just goth. Yeah. You know, death metal. No, you, you, know, you, you put, or, or show tunes. You or put opera. that very well. I said I, I was saying to you how I weirdly in two different cities over four nights in a row saw Calexico, the Pixies, Lady Gaga, and Harry Connick Jr. And how that was probably the strangest run of four different shows, mostly all very good in different ways, and how they spoke to four different audiences essentially. And you jumped straight in and said they actually speak to four different parts of you. You're dead right. Yeah, like there was a reason I was at all of those shows. Yeah, for a start. Well, you know, when when I was reviewing for the Herald, um, and I spent years, I mean literally years and years, if not mm. more than a decade going out three, four nights a week mm. to see different musicians. But I was the guy who, you know, because when I was young, I heard 
um, flamenco music and I heard Ravi Shankar, who just honestly, like, who's like my John Coltrane as well, you know, like just what mm. it common, just turned my way of thinking, Thelonious Monk. So I would go and see, like you, I mean, I would mm. go and see uh, an Indian sitar concert one night and speed metal the next night, you know, like anthrax <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And, and it, it, it never mattered to me who they were. You know, you just want to see yeah. the best, basically. Yes, and were they good at what they did? Are, are, are they good <laughs> yeah. at what they do? You yeah. Know? Um, so, well, how did you get to that point? I, 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 you know, you, you've talked a bit about how music came into your life. I guess, how did writing come into your life? Were you also a book uh, guy as a kid who was just devouring words, or was did that just become the way you ended up sharing your passion um, about music? Yeah, I mean, I read, I read a lot as a kid. Um, I mean, I wasn't you know, that attached to literature and there's, you know, many great books of literature I have not even gone close to. Yeah. I don't understand a lot of it and I don't do it. But, um, uh, yeah, when when I was at school, I liked writing and it seemed like I was fairly good at it. Um, I won an award for English at school, but... And then, then they gave me this really bloody awful book as a prize, which was... You know, great stories in the world of sport. I've mm. still got it downstairs. And I'm not a sporty guy, but mm. you know, I've got all the great stories in the world of sport. I don't think I've ever opened it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I, I I liked words, and but but I made a terrible mistake. Um, I, I've told the story a couple of times because I think it's kind of important and salutary for young people. I used to watch a guy called Jacques Cousteau on television, mm. um, who was this exotic French guy who went out, you know, scuba diving with, you know, enormously beautiful young women in bikinis uh, on his boat Calypso or something, you know, and travelled around the world. Yeah. And I looked at that on TV and I thought, that's a good job, I want that job. <laughs> so I went to university not knowing a single solitary thing about science, but decided I wanted to be a marine biologist. Wow. And so I went to Auckland University <laughs> and said to a guy, what do I need to do? And Professor Chapman said to me, you need to do botany, zoology and chemistry. And I said, thank you, sir. And I did botany and zoology and chemistry and failed <laughs> magnificently. Um, in fact, I failed chemistry the second year by more marks than I failed in the first year, uh, and they kicked me out after two years for failure to make satisfactory academic progress. And in the, while waiting around, uh, I went to Teachers College, and when I got to Teachers College, waiting for them to transfer my papers to another university, which they fucking didn't do, mm. um, I ran into a guy called Terry McNamara, TJ McNamara there, who uh, has been... I, I think over 50 years has been the art critic for the New Zealand Herald. Uh, and Terry had been a teacher at my school, and he kind of, I don't think he knew me, I never had a class with him, but at the end of my first year, and he was teaching English, he said to me, Graham, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I've been kicked out of uni. He said, oh, we need to get you back. And thank you, Terry. I don't know what he did, but he pulled some strings, he got me back, and he got me back doing what I should have been doing, which was English, art history, and then I ended up doing, you know, Chinese philosophy and Italian film and literature. I made up a degree. But I was back doing what I needed to do, which mm. was writing. And when I was at university, I started writing for Kraken, which is the university magazine. I mm. started reviewing stuff there. Um, but even while I was at teacher's college, I created... Because I couldn't believe it. When you left university, you went to teacher's college. It was so dead at teacher's college. You know, like I've been... 
you know, protesting on the streets and all that sort of stuff. And Tim Shadbolt, and blah, 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 late 60s, early 70s. You go to teachers' college and they're sort of buttoned down, you know, 19-year-old girls from Whangarei, you know, mm. come to Auckland for a while and, you know, I hate to say it, but probably looking for a husband. And, their bo- the, you know, the boys at teachers' college were pretty straight and I thought, fuck this, you know. So I started a magazine there called Dog Breath Views and we started writing about stuff, you know. And I got my friend um, Willa Lalahia, who was, you know, uh, very big in the Polynesian Panthers. Uh, And Will would come in and speak and, I, I, you know, I started to get people like that. And and the only way to get that message out was to write about Mm. it, you know, because there's not access to anything else. And so I just started writing and writing, and when I left Teachers College, I decided that, you know, like most people at the time I want, I had no money. Um, I was also married with a kid at the time, you know, married young. Um, And um, I decided that I needed free records. It was that simple. (laughs) I want free records. And so I approached the local newspaper, the North Shore Times Advertiser, and I said, what you need is a music review column. And they fell for it. It's Suckers. Kind of, it's kind of scary how um, similar a lot of your story is to, to mine. I was going to say, and to many people. Yeah, that's I right. Think, you know, and I was going to say, like, obviously for me, when I started writing about music, I had um, several teachers. You were one of them. Nick Bollinger was one of them. You know, and I've got to know you guys and and meet and interview you and follow your works, Gary Steele. Yeah, all sorts. But so, who were your who were your teachers? You know, who were you looking to to either replicate or get an idea from, or you know, see that it was a uh, possibility? You, no, you you know what? I, I mean, it sounds a terrible thing to say, but actually, no one. Yeah, well, that's what I was sort of getting from your there, story there was, so far. There was like, no yeah, one, right? Um, you know, I I mean, I read a whole lot of NME and Melody Maker and all that sort of nonsense. Yeah. You know. Um, but there were no names that I ever followed. Mm. Um, I remember Gordon Campbell writing in The Listener because he would have a very pithy turn of phrase, but um, he was never a kind of role model or anything like mm, that. Mm. Um, and I just, no, I, I never did that. And I'm really, really suspicious of those people like, you know, Grail Marcus, you know, who's mm. a bloody American critic they put up on a pedestal. Well, he put himself on the pedestal. Yes, he did. You know? Uh, and, you know, carburetor dung, you know. I mean, he was as wrong as he was right, you know. Lester, what I mean? yeah, yeah. Lester Banks advanced the most appalling crap. Um, but that said, you know, I had you kind of admired his freewheeling style of writing, which yeah. is nothing that I've ever done because, as I say, you know, I, I, I was an adult, you know. I, yeah. I had kids, um, and I, you know, three kids by you know, very quickly because there was my oldest son and twins. Uh, so, you know, suddenly I'm an adult, three kids. Mm. Um, so when I started the Herald, um, and the, the reason I started the Herald was because um, I'd been writing lots of stuff for various people, you know. I approached Warwick Roger at Metro and I wrote fiction for them and, uh, you know, music. And I wrote essays and stuff mm. for various people and the listener. Um, and the Herald asked me to, you know, do you want to be an entertainment writer here? Uh, and I said, 
why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I looked at the money, it was the same I was getting in teaching and the hours were different and I thought, oh, it's going to be a lot more fun. You know, I mean, the fun for me had gone out of teaching. Mm. Uh, I loved it, but the second you lose it in teaching, you, leave, you need to leave. You know, I really believe that. And I thought, time to leave. Yeah. And here was this opportunity. So and you're already starting to get used to free records too. That's a uh, that's a hard one to hard refuse. One to refuse Absolutely right? hard yeah. one to refuse. Yeah. Even if some of them are crap, simple yeah. lines albums, but you know, yeah. at least you've got them. Yeah. Um, and 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 I was just loving all of that stuff, you know, because I mean, part of it was that I was, I mean, I was there right for punk, and. You know, at my age, and I, I can't remember what I would have been. I mean, I would have been late 20s when punk hit. And all my friends were, you know, they were probably settling down at that point. I, would have, I was already settled. And this just spoke to me. Mm. You know, I used to go to Zwines and clubs like that in Auckland. And, you know, I mean, all that stuff was just so exciting. It reminded me of that stuff that I'd heard in the early 60s. So there was nothing new in any of that. But it was so exciting after all those goddamn Yes albums mm, and things mm. like that. Some of which I liked, you know. I mean, I thought, that's okay, you know. But the thrill of that, and then certainly post-punk. Um, you know, bands like Uli XTC, Magazine, you know, they, they, they just meant something. I just thought they were fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and the Ramones, of course, you know... You know, I'm a dogged Ramones fan, even when they were crap, they were still better than most bands on the planet. So, you know, when I got to the Herald, I kind of, I was kind of ready for it, but I wasn't mm. a kid. Mm. You know, I was the fanboy. Yeah. Um, and I got there as a kind of adult. And so I could talk to those musicians as an adult, mm. not as a fanboy. And that, I think, made a big difference. Well, what do you remember your first um, kind of significant interview? Or a moment like that, if not an interview, then a meet, um, meeting of someone where you went, this is actually a, or, or just seeing a really big show. Do you have a standout early uh, moment? Well, I mean, I, uh, one of the most memorable shows I ever saw was Cheap Trick, who played in, at the Auckland Town Hall. Mm. And the memorable thing about Cheap Trick was I met them in the afternoon beforehand, and uh, and I, I don't think I was even writing for the Herald, or maybe even not, <laughs> not whatever I was writing for. There was a magazine called Celluloid Strip, which I think maybe William Dart had something to do with, and it was about movies. Mm. And they had done a soundtrack to a movie or something, and using that as an excuse, I got to meet <laughs> Dolly Parton and Cheap Trick. And I went to interview Cheap Trick um, in the hotel. The old, it was called the Intercom Needle at the time. I took my, my son Julian along with me, who was probably about 11 or something, um, and... We just had a, we could have a conversation because, as I say, I'm an adult, you know. Mm. And they had been told that if they played too loud, well, the plug would be pulled at the Auckland Town Hall. Um, and Rick Nielsen said to me, well, good luck with that. There's a million dollars worth of equipment on the stage and we will present them with a bill if anything gets, you know, fucked up. Mm. And I thought, oh, man, I love your music. I like, I like these guys. They're very funny. I went to that show at the Auckland Town Hall, and I think anybody who was there would tell you the same thing. It was the most extraordinary rock show because it was so constrained at the start and the bouncers were just making sure people sat down there at one point. Rick Nielsen just raised his hand like that <laughs> and the whole room got up and people danced like lunatics and that balcony shook. 
I've never, I, I saw Iggy Pop play there and it shook again for him, but that was extraordinary. I, I do remember that. But my first serious interview um, uh, was um, Suzanne Vega, actually, I think, when her first album came out. And I wrote about it for the Herald and my boss there at the time, the head of the entertainment department, only for a year, um, was Colin Hogg. Right, And, yeah. you know, this is my first serious long-form interview and long form then was probably 1,500 words, which is, you know, just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Nobody even thinks about that. Yeah. But, you know, in later years I was writing 2,500, but long form. Um, and the only piece of advice I ever got from anybody as a journalist of the Herald came from Colin. He looked at it and he said, it's great. He said, but the, you've left the punchline to the end. He said, and punchline should be at the end, but he said, it's a better intro. And I looked at it and I thought, ah, right. You start with the thing you remember, the thing that grabs you, and I, that's it. I shifted it to the intro, and I think it was an okay story. Mm. Um, what was she like? She'd be pretty. Oh, she, she was good. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you. But start of her career, like in terms of yeah, right, being interviewed and stuff. Right yeah, at the beginning of her yeah. career. Uh, and um, Katie Lang. I mean, she was just. You know, you meet these extraordinary people, and you meet Katie Lang when she was. You know, just kind of starting. Yeah. She wow. said, I'm, "I'm the big bone girl from Canada." I always remember that, and <laughs> you know, we just had a laugh and shook hands, and I think probably a big hug actually. Um, and those, you know, those people at the beginning of their career, they're always so grateful. You know. Yeah, just, yeah. And they, of course, they couldn't believe that. You know, and and we need to remind ourselves of this. They're speaking to the biggest newspaper in the country at that point. Yeah. You know, and the so city, they felt uh, um, blown away that. Oh, they could. They were live. afforded some time by yeah, absolutely, and, unreal, and yeah. serious time. You know, yes. like Quincy Jones. You know, I sat with wow. Quincy Jones, and you know, people like that. You know, they they. And yes, writing, being based in Auckland, and writing for the as you say the biggest paper in the country, you're actually getting the face to face interviews. Mm -hmm. You're going and meeting them at Soundcheck or the day before yep. or after the show. Sometimes out to the airport or a showcase gig. A wine and dine experience sometimes, the junket. <laughs> oh, can we talk about junkets? Because yeah. I think that's. I, I no, think, I want you to talk about yeah, junkets. Yeah, because I think that's a really important and um, because that dynamic has changed so much. Yeah. Um, you know, because, and, you know, I'm not putting a bag on it, but, you know, The Herald was the biggest newspaper in the country and it was, it was read by people. Yeah. You know, when I would go to small places around the country people knew who I was mm, you know music bet. people knew who I was because you know oh you're the Herald guy because they didn't get Rip It Up they didn't get anything yeah. else you know they didn't get you know whatever Gary Steele was doing you know if you went to Gisborne they got the Herald yeah. my photographs in the Herald I'm the guy yep. who has spoken to you know whoever it was from Bob Marley's crew you know I've, I've spoken to Ziggy Martin I was the guy and people would recognise me and that you realise that the impact of that power that that had, yeah. and so also you realise the responsibility that you had. But then the record companies started saying, "Well, okay, what you know, we we need publicity for blah blah blah," uh, and they would put together a junket. And I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, I I go to the states, uh, you know, uh, L.A., New York, fly back through London, and then you know Tokyo, and and do interviews along the way. Now, sometimes these interviews never got published because they were 
fucking boring people yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, the, or their moment had passed, yes. you know, like you thought, oh, okay, why would you yeah. bother? Um, but other times you're getting people who were right on the cusp, mm. you know, ready to break, you know, world party, blur, uh, you know, Oasis I met a couple of times and they were funny, funny guys. Um, you know, but then, you know, I saw, I had the misfortune to see the, and I always called them the god awful cranberries. Yeah. In, in, in Tokyo. Okay, so I never understood the appeal. No, no, I don't get it, even, even today. You know, when yeah. she died, I thought, yeah. well, really? You know, you were that concerned? Yeah. Um, no, they were terrible. Um, terrible live act and whatever, but you know, people seem to like that yodeling thing that that Irish woman did. I don't know, I simply don't get it. But the thing about this was that I realized that okay, you know, this is the power that the hero has. Mm. Um, they will send me off to interview, you know, whoever it is in New York. I don't know, but then I'm there, so why don't I talk to Ornette Coleman? Yeah. You know, why don't I talk to John Zorn? You know, these were people who were happening at the mm, time. Mm. They were people that meant something to me. Um, so you were just the, arranging that yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Herald could open the door, but then what, yeah. I was, what I was hoping to do was to open the door for all this <laughs> other stuff that comes through. Mm. And so, you know, the, uh, regrettably, you know, the Herald, you know, what do you call it, you know, online files, they don't go back before 2001. And I, I think if you want to access stuff in the 90s, you know, you have to go to the God, paper files and probably pay some money. But sitting there in their files, are all these interviews that I did with people, you know, mm. um, you know, Jar Wobble when I was in London, like that was a wow. massive story. Do you have copies of them yourself, many of the stuff, or have you um, lost uh, um, some, some of I, it along uh, the way? Some I do. I went to Sylvie Simmons' house, for example, in San Francisco. Oh, right, she, okay, has, yeah. she has a filing cabinet, I mean, she's not a tall person, but she has a filing cabinet that's bigger than her. And yeah. she just about has a transcript of, or, or a cutting of everything she's done. Which is an incredible um, personal archive to have amassed. I what I did was because it was a, it was a weird thing at the Herald, you know. I was on a salary, so I got paid to do, you know, certain things. But yeah. then, of course, there were other things that I did outside of that, mm. like reviewing my review column. Mm. I was paid separately for that. So I realised very early on, um, and I started in '87. Um, that I needed to, you know, keep an archive of this mm. thing. So I just got, you know, bloody big kid scrapbooks and I would cut out my articles and literally paste them into the scrapbook because it was my yeah. It was my file to invoice, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. So I, I actually do still have a lot of those things downstairs. But there is this yawning chasm which is <laughs> really annoying. Yeah. For some reason I must have got yeah. rid of I don't know, it's like ninety eight to 2001 and at that point you know we were we were just pulling it for all it was worth you know that was when I was really understanding like I can do this you know I can make this work for our readers I mean some of, of course some was about me I want to interview Ornette Coleman mm. I want to go and talk to Yoko Ono I never actually got to meet her in person but two maybe three phone interviews with her in fact, one time I was in New York and I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting and they they rang and they said, yeah, she'll see you at noon. And I said, great, I'm flying out at nine, you know. Mm. I'm gone from here and I've waited four days for this. But I just want to say this about that. I mean, this 
It is glamorous. Let's not pretend about it. It's fun, and it yeah. was it was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, it, it mean, and it's gone too. <laughs> um, you know, probably you know, I mean, why not put this out there? I think it probably cost me a marriage and another relationship because you know I couldn't tell the difference between you know fun and work. You know, there was I, yeah, they just completely blurred for a long time. Yeah, um, and you know, I was the Herald Entertainment editor for a while. They didn't give me any budget to entertain, so I used to take people out for drinks and long lunches, and guess who was paying for it? I was. But the reason that I did those, and I did about four or five really good junkets. I mean, one of them was just literally flying to London, getting in a cab, going to Leicester and seeing Oasis play, and then back to London, I think probably even back home after that. Wow. It was, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. It was mind-boggling. Um, but the reason I did it, and I remember saying this to Murray Kamek at Rip It Up very clearly, Murray, I'm doing this not for me. I'm doing this so you can do the next one. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to say, okay, the Herald's got the cloud, but, you know, why don't you record company people take others? You know, now I've done it. You know, you've seen I've done the work. You know, I interviewed Duran Duran. What a boring, what a pricks they were, you know. But I did all that work so that you could now say, mm. okay, Mr. Kamek, you know, why don't you go somewhere and see soul bands or John Russell, who was the deputy editor at the time and went on to do Real Groove. I mean, I, I really had that agenda in mind that I wanted to make this... You know, I think we in, in this country, we have our own view of the world. You know, we will make of, you know, Florence and the Machine or Oasis or whoever, we will make of them what we will. Yeah. We don't need this received opinion from anybody else. And I always had that in mind. You know, I will go there and see them as a New Zealander looking in from the outside. Reporting back for New and, Zealanders. And for New Zealanders, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, it is enormously annoying for me now to see that, for example, if somebody's coming here, they will quote... I don't know, some yep. four or five different overseas online sites. Maybe yes. They won't quote you about yeah. an artist. They yeah. won't quote me. Even if we're favourable, yeah. they won't quote us. They're still doing this default position to the yes. you know, the international voice. TMZ you know? so, said this <laughs> or whatever. Just, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm sorry, I don't care. You know, I mean, I think Mojo does a fine job. I think Q does a fine job. I think all those SoundCloud things, that, you know, people yeah. respond... You know, it's fine, but we have our own opinion about it. Yeah. And that was the one thing I was very, very clear, and have always been very clear about. Yeah, you know? and we had some good, in that, and particularly in that age you're talking about, I guess, really from the 80s and the end of the 80s, but right through until the early 2000s, um, we had some good writers in New Zealand writing about music, I think. We had among the best in the world. You yeah, know, I really, really happy. You know, to you say mentioned that. Gordon Campbell, who's who's more than just a music writer, but as a music writer, he was very good and very influential. Now you see, because I said before, you know, you know, I have no role yeah. models or yeah. anything like that. But the one thing I liked about Gordon Campbell was he wrote about politics. Yeah. As well. Yeah. And you see, when I was at the Herald, I realised. Well, you know, I'm a writer. Yeah. I can write about this, and I can write about that, and I yeah. can write about that. And one day, I, you know, my wife says, you shouldn't say this, crap, but I'm going to say it again. You know, I was, I was the long-haired guy sitting in the corner writing about rock bands, you know. That's who I was at the mm. Herald. 
and sometimes these people would launch in, you know. And I remember Dead Moon coming in, you know, and what's his name? had a huge tattoo on his cheek. Yeah. They just lurched into the room. He's about six foot four. He's dead now, unfortunately. Big hat on, and him and Tweedy came in. And, you know, I was the guy sitting in the corner who, mm. you know, I said, no, no, to security. They didn't have much security. I said, no, let him in. It's okay. You know, we can talk about this stuff. Skinhead bands would come in. You know, the plague came in. People just cowed in the corner. They were so polite. Hello, Graham. How are you? <laughs> they were a rough, rough skinhead band here. But, but then what they what the hero realised is, I, I don't know how they realised, but you know, I've got a degree. Mm. I've got a degree in English and art history, and I would show interest in this or this, and particularly architecture, which I really like. And then they realised, oh gosh, you know, you you could write about this other stuff too. Mm. And so I ended up doing a lot of um, political writing. Not about New Zealand politics, thank God, you know, it's such a bore. <laughs> but no, international politics, that's what I would do. I mean, I went to Taiwan, interviewed the Premier there about corruption, which was interesting, you know. Um, and boy, are they corrupt. Um, but also, uh, you know, as part of my job when I was going away to do the political stuff, but also to do the, you know, rock and roll stuff, as it were, um, I'd come back with travel stories. Yeah, because you know when I went somewhere, I go, let's go and have a look at something else. Here, I was just going to ask if this is what sort of informed your move into travel writing was that just the very obvious thing that you were sent away to cover things. I'm so, there, you know, I'm there. Yeah, again, and, it's that opening of the door, right? That's yeah, yeah. Well, I'm there, and if I'm in, you know, I was in Los Angeles, for example, to do, uh, God, who was it? Uh, Schwarzenegger oh, and George Clooney and those sort of people. Um, it was that terrible? One of those terrible films they were all in. I can't mm. remember what it was. Um, a Batman thing, actually. It was a Batman movie. Um, and there were two days free. And I thought, well, I'm going to go up, you know, see that museum up there, you know, some of the greatest art in the world up on the mountain. I'll go and do that. But then also I go to the Hollywood Wax Museum, and, which is awful. You know, it's one of the worst mm. wax museums in the world. Um, and I would just come back and I'd just say, hey, you know, I've got these stories for the travel section. Do you want that? Um, and any time I could, I'd get on an airplane and get out of here. Um, you know, and I went to Vietnam just when it was opening up for tourism in 95, went back in 97, um, you know, spent time in, you know, Thailand, um, China. Um, you know, I just sort of went places because I wanted to. And, and it was just kind of boring sitting at the Herald, you know, like you do all your work. And it was fun, enjoyable, whatever. But at some point, you think, "Yeah, but there's more than this," mm. you know. And so I would just go out, and and I guess people would call it off the grid today. I mean, I mean, some of it was because it was like when I went to Vietnam, there was absolutely no tourism infrastructure at all. And I mean, it wasn't dangerous, um, but you know, some places I went quite obviously were. You know, when I was sent to the Solomon Islands for the Herald, that was. It was bloody dangerous, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When do you think you became aware of the concept of elsewhere? Because it's a it's oh. a concept for you that's threaded through a lot of your work. Yeah, well, you've, um, you've it, used it in a few different ways. It it, it appeared um, by sheer chance in a way um, in the early eighties. Gosh, it sounds old, doesn't it? But in the early eighties, <laughs> um, there were. A friend of mine called Pat Shaw started what they call the Cotton Club here in Auckland. 
Uh, and, you know, Pat got through some really interesting musicians. I mean, all black guys from Chicago and whatever. Mm. And, you know, and some mainstream players. Mm. And we started the Auckland Jazz News, which was just a flyer, basically, to promote his Cotton Club, which was at the Mandalay Newmarket, and every now and again, a even bigger, you know, concept. And some really good musicians came through, and sometimes I'd travel with these old black guys around the country and whatever, and their, their view of New Zealand was interesting, you know. Old black man from Chicago watching, you know, road workers in New Zealand and saying, so you make all your black people in this country work on the roads? Because <laughs> all he saw was married guys working on the roads. So, you know, I did all that, and then we decided we, stupidly, in 1984, We'd launch a magazine, and it would be bigger than that, because in 84, there was such a lot happening here. You know, there was, uh, from scratch, there was lots and lots of odd people putting out stuff on tape. Mm. Um, and so we launched this magazine called Passages, and I called it, the subtitle Passages, the magazine of jazz and elsewhere. And that allowed me to talk to, you know, Don McGlashan about, you know, what, what he was doing was either from scratch or know, whatever he was doing. Um, and But at the same time, you know, Phil Broadhurst, you know, talking about jazz or whatever. Uh, we did international interviews and all that. And so when I went to the Herald and they gave me this column, they said, what do you want to call it? And I said, why don't we just call it Jazz and Elsewhere? And they thought, oh, that's a good idea. And then after a while, of course... You know, they could see me reviewing stuff that was neither jazz nor elsewhere. <laughs> and they said, oh, let's just call it elsewhere. And I said, yeah, yeah, fine, you know. And so when I was sort of leaving the Herald on my way out, I remember having a meeting with a, a very lovely woman who said, why are you taking so long to get out, Graham, you know? She said, you have a brand, because that was always big, a fucking brand, you know? Mm. And I just laughed. Said, what the hell is my brand? She said, elsewhere, that's your brand. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, it is, because, you know, when I travelled, I was going, I was going elsewhere, I was going to places yeah. that not a lot of people went to, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the States travelling around, and that was under Helen Clark's regime, in which America was just this kind of big bogeyman no-no, like, fuck you, you know, it's a great country, you know, you get yeah. out there and there's so many different Americas, so, you know, I would go, you know, Megan and I, my wife, we travelled around the south for I don't know, three, four months. Um, and then the next time we went back, we did the northeast up there, you know, to Canada and stuff. Um, so I was just, you know, always just going elsewhere. And I quite liked that idea. Mm. Um, and so elsewhere just became that so-called brand. Um, and that's how that disaster began. <laughs> <laughs> that loss leader is this. <laughs> but it but it has morphed a bit because it's you know, it was a it's been a clever title for uh, as you say, different kinds of music or for something like jazz as a starting point and then it signals to other things that are not mainstream pop, basically. But then, oh, yeah, it, then yeah. it became a, an umbrella term for any of your writing around travel. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, now as your website, it's yeah. it's an actual place people go. They go to elsewhere to read about other things. That's, to, that's what I would hope yeah. that people would understand this idea that, you know, you're sitting at home. You can actually go elsewhere. 
yeah. all the time. You yeah. can go elsewhere. And, you know, some people watch, you know, Spider-Man movies to go elsewhere or whatever mm. bullshit they watch. You know, I, well, there's other ways of doing elsewhere. And, you know, part of mine is, I mean, obviously there's a travel component. But, you know, I just like discovering things. And I've got that whole section now which is called um, We Need to Talk About. Mm. Which is this whole section about these oddball characters who have been in and around the music world. Yeah. Uh, and this week, actually, um, because la a couple of weeks ago I did something about my From the Vaults, you know, single odd songs that I've discovered, which have a good uh, good backstory, and then, I can't remember what it was, I travelled last week. This week I've decided, oh, I'll just do this one's about, you know, we need to know about. You know? Mm. I mean, some of them you can't, you can't actually put on Facebook because, you know, they take them down because they're obscene or whatever. But, you know, there's other ones, you know, just crazy people who, mm. you know, who killed people, you know, musicians who, you know, killed their wives or husbands or whatever. Um, but also other, you know, other really interesting people who did stuff that just disappeared mm. out of our lives and yet deserve to be remembered for what they did. So, you know, yeah, I... And and if so, Simon, I amuse myself. Yeah, that's if what it's about. I and just if we, amuse myself. If we filter things as we, as we, as a bunch, we seem to be doing more and more around what's relevant to a particular moment in time and has an impact, or or cannot be offensive. Then these sorts of stories you're talking about, these footnotes and slightly bigger than footnotes, yeah. and in some cases not even footnotes, yeah. they're falling right through the cracks. Yeah, They're disappearing. I, I, re regrettably, they are in, yeah. in the rush to the centre. Yeah. That these people, as you say, are footnotes. And I think sometimes you just expand the footnote and mm. say, you know, Lola Fiana. You know, you look at her and you think, mm. oh, there, now that's an extraordinary woman. Mm. You know, what she achieved in her lifetime, and she's forgotten. You know? mm. And, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. just thought she was the most amazing, you know, singer dancer on the planet. And you, you look at a video clip and you go, wow, you know, that's, yeah. she is extraordinary. So, so yeah, you know, it's it's not that I'm trying to keep these people alive. It's it just if they interest me, um, and as I say, you know, my website is just it's what interests me, and my my interests go from you know, as I say, you know, go from architecture and you know soul to you know weird books and literature, and um, I think well, you know, that's 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 all you can do, really, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's the best you can do with a website. This interests me. Maybe it'll interest you. If it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's only a website. Yeah, you'll, get a, a you'll get a full refund. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's free. Of what you cost. So, yeah, what it costs It's you. free. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, you, you also published the book of travel stories. Uh, I've done two books of travel yeah. stories, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, they both won awards, funnily enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's no need to do that anymore because... Um, the travel, travel stories I wrote were, you know, they're different travel stories. They're not selling a destination. Yeah. Um, and regrettably, you know, when I look at, you know, the travel journalism now, it's not, it's, it just sells a destination. Somebody's yeah. got a free trip to somewhere yeah. and they're going to tell you, you know, how wonderful it is. Yeah. Well, of course they are, you know. The, it's the, basically in praise of the junket. Oh, yeah the, 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 yeah. the waves lap against the, you know, the canoe yeah, or, yeah, yeah. you know, the Fijian guy brings you the, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, a yeah. drink by the pool. Um, you know, that's not travel. That's, that's just bullshit. I mean, that's just PR. Mm. Um, so um, I have... 
I'll be honest, I had done a little of that, but I think by and large I haven't done that. Mm. I think I've just gone out and thought, well, this is terrible, I'm going to say so, um, and have. Uh, but every now and again, of course, you, know, you go somewhere and it's great. It's mm. wonderful. Um, but for me, my opinion, well, never happened to me in Fiji. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could see why it could happen to people yeah. in Fiji, but, man, you, you get outside the resort and go around, well, you're going to see another Fiji. You know, yeah. that's a whole different game. Uh, and, you know, I, mean, I was there when Bainarama was shaking hands at the airport, and I didn't shake his hand. But, you know, like, you know, the, like yeah, those, those places there. But, see, I consider that interesting of itself. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, if, yeah. if you go to Fiji, I get it, you know. Like, I get it that you've got one week holiday a year, and you want a nice time. I get that. But if you've got nine days... Just take two. <laughs> get out of the resort. Yeah, yeah. Get in that hire car. Go to a village. Sit on the beach. Watch somebody come to you with their hand out saying, can you please give me some money? I need to feed my children. Just go and do that, you know. It's not going to cost you anything. You know? But you will have seen something different. And something so, that's not in the brochure. Yeah. Absolutely not in the brochure because mm. that's, you know, that's not what the PR people are selling you. Um, but as I say, look, I've been places like Newey. Mm. You know, I, mean, I, I went to Nui on, on, was it a junket or may, maybe I paid, I don't know, maybe it was a junket. Um, and you know, there for four days. Met wonderful people, mm. beautiful place. Mm. I would I would recommend Nui to anybody. It's so close, beautiful swimming, lovely. I went up with John Puller, the artist actually, because he was going home to, you know, put up some artwork in there. Um, but, you know, I understand that the people they introduced me to mm. were the P- not the PR people, but, you know, they were local identities. And Mark Cross, who was a really great New Zealand artist who lives part-time up there, part-time down here, you know, he said, oh, Graham, you know, you, you, know, you just fell for it. And I said, yeah, I did. I knew exactly what I was doing. Mm. Because it's an island that's only based on tourism. Yeah. And it's New Zealand government money that's gone there to ensure that that happens. We're paying it. <laughs> fist loads of money to them. I want people to go to Nui. I mm. want people to put money into that economy. I want them to go and have a thoroughly nice time. And it's a good break. And yeah. it's not Fiji, you know. Mm. And you can actually interact with people so easily there because there's so few people there. I don't know, 6,500 or something. You know, it's a crazy. You just meet the same people day after day, you know. So I had, I had no illusions about doing that. I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, and had a lovely time. I can't imagine this was much of a earner for you at all, but I feel like one of the things you probably did for a while and loved a lot was the column for Real Growth. I don't remember if I was paid for that. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing it wouldn't have been much if you were. Actually, you know what? I, th- I think I was. Um, you know, I, I'm very honest about these things. I think... Mm. If I remember, it might have been 50 bucks. Yeah. Um, and the thing I liked about it was that... Well, that always came across like a real labour of love, that column. Well, it was just what I wanted to do. Um, and, I, you know, I guess you're talking about that stuff which was mostly jazz. Yeah, mostly like jazz. That. Yeah. And, I mean, um, I, that's, you know, you mentioned to me before we started recording, you know, if I like, you know, where I got into jazz and, and that column was a big part of my education in jazz, I think. Well, I just... I like doing it because, again, I mean, 
uh, uh, John Russell, who was the editor at the time, just said, write whatever you want to write. Yeah. And I said, well, okay, <laughs> that's stupid, but I will. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I did like about it is that, you know, I, I got to do my own artwork. Yeah. You know, I do these collage art things. I've got a whole bunch of them downstairs here. You know, I, I just used to do that just to amuse myself, you yeah. know. I'd be listening to this music up here and there's, you know, we're sitting in my lounge at the moment. There's the kitchen table. I would sit there and I'd do this collage, cut up artwork and whatever. Um, and just, you know, size it to go into real groove. And every now and again, Joel would say, oh, that one really worked. Oh, I didn't like that one, you know, whatever. Um, but it was just something to do, mm. you know. And I loved listening to the music. And I also... Um, I got to hear a lot of contemporary classical music at that time, mm. um, not just Philip Glass and you know Moran and people like that. You know, I, I would just had that possibility of listening to all that stuff, and you know, I know that you know I understand people enjoy the music they enjoy. You know, I've got friends of my age, and I think I've said before, I'm 67. You know, I've got friends who say there's no decent music after 72. Yeah, you know? yeah. I understand those people, you know. Yeah. They haven't listened to anything after 72. Yeah. But that's fine. Um, and I, I do understand that, you know, young people, if you're into hip-hop, uh, you don't need to listen to anything outside of hip-hop. You've got a radio station to play it to you night and day. Yeah. Uh, and that's your world. And I get that. Um, but for me, um, you know, I just prefer... You know, it's not even outside a comfort zone. It's just, it's just curiosity. Yeah. You know? Like I yeah. just want to, I don't know what else is going on. Mm. And so I would hear all this quite extraordinary sometimes um, contemporary classical music, uh, which is you know it's John Howe, it's a saxophone quartet. You know, it's a, mm. sort of closer to you know Ellington than it is classical. So I would, I would just listen to all that stuff as well. Um, and so you know. Real Group just, you know, gave me the opportunity to, to do that and to write about it. And as I say, to make stupid bloody artwork that went with it, you know. <laughs> uh, and I loved it. And it was fun. But, know? yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got a, you've always had this really diverse range of music that you've written about. And we, when it was, I understand, because I did a similar thing for the Dominion, I wasn't a salaried employee, but with an official title, but I did for years write about brand new records and review shows so I yes. did it was a mixture of the things you really wanted to see and hear and mm. were interested in and stuff you didn't know anything about or, yeah. you, or you were pretty sure you hated it was a real range and maybe you found some good stuff but you've you've kept that up you've, you seem genuinely curious in music and it's if not every possible option in a, in, in a pretty broad range I, look, honestly, I part company with a whole bunch of it. Um, yeah. I, Irish folk music, I do not get. Sure. And honestly, I do. You know, I almost dislike it with a passion, almost to racial hatred. <laughs> 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 but seriously, you know, and I've said this to a few people: a jig is a jig is a jig. You know. Yeah. I don't care whether it comes from county this or county that. You know, for me, it doesn't mean anything. Um, but I do understand that if you know. If you're an Irish bar yeah. and you've had four Guinnesses under your belt, it's probably the best music you've ever heard in your life at that point. For me, um, it's not like that. So certain, certain hey, nonny, nonny. It's interesting when you, I mean, I used to play in an Irish band for years. Oh, and I'm sorry to hear no, that. Yeah, well, well, exactly. It was, 
the things you do and and I learnt a lot from it and at one point it made me very fond of the music and then it probably sent me very far away from it but it is interesting being in a bar playing a whatever an instrumental jig or a reel or, or some sort of folk song whatever and having a person come up at the end of the song almost weeping and saying thank yeah. you for playing that that's from you know, from my county, from yeah, yeah. from whatever. That's from my yeah, county, yeah. or yeah. that's a Scottish song, and that's from you know blah blah yeah, blah. Yeah. And that means a lot to me. Like like it was a re- request that you never engineered. That's kind yeah. of amazing. But but yeah, if you don't have that purchase on it, then why would the music speak to you? It's a bit. It's a bit like in that sense, forms of you know celestial and gospel music right if you're not a deep believer then you can't get that connection to it you know i think there's some things you can appreciate yeah you appreciate it for what it is yeah me i don't appreciate one jig after another i just don't i don't get it yeah you know but for me um you know the proclaimers i think are coming to town yeah you know i'm you know i I grew up with home rule for scotland you know all of that you know Mm. I, i understand all that um but the proclaimers speak to me. You yeah, know, yeah. I go and see them. And as a friend of mine, Russell Bailey from the Hill, once said we were at a proclaimers gig, and he said, oh, this is like reggae for Scottish people. And he's absolutely <laughs> yeah, right. You yeah. know, it's a bonding yeah, thing for totally. people of that persuasion. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've been to a lot of, um, you know, we spent a little bit of time in Ireland. I've been to Irish shows, whatever. Mm. That's, that's not a music that speaks to me. Yeah, and, then yeah, and you can't like everything and you shouldn't try. No, yeah. no. And, and Zydeco music, mm. love it. But, you know, four songs and then, yeah, man, yeah, I'm yeah, out of there. Yeah. Like, I get the party atmosphere, but, you know, when we were down in the south, you know, Zydeco and Cajun, great. But for how much longer? Mm. You know, so... Um, so people have probably asked you this before and, and they've certainly asked me about how you keep yourself... I guess fresh with listening to music or how you keep yourself enthused I don't actually want to ask you that but I do I want to ask you it in the context of how have you kept yourself fresh when interviewing people and and how I guess has your approach changed to doing an interview because you've interviewed loads of people I want to know um, I guess what your approach has been and if if how that's changed over the years and how and I, I guess the question I'm looking for is how you how you stay interested in doing that because you tell people that you've interviewed someone and they go, wow, that must have been amazing. And it's like, yeah, it often is. But it is also just a component of a job. So after a while, and some interviews are fucking boring, right? Like, so. Well, some interviews you get people on autopilot, and mm-hmm. I fully understand that. But, mm. but you know, um, you and I can go on autopilot. You know, yep. if I sit down and didn't have a conversation, somebody says to me, oh, you spoke to Miles Davis, what was that like? I will tell my Miles Davis yes. story. Yeah, yeah. You know? And you, you, you know, it's like coming back from holiday somewhere. Mm-hmm. What was it like? You know, so you have the, re- <laughs> the reductive yes. kind of bullet point thing. Yeah. Um, uh, d- there is a very big difference now um, because well, there's two factors. First of all, um, for a long time, for a very long time in my life as a reviewer and interviewer, you had time, and you could also interview people when they didn't have anything to sell, and that's the most important thing. Mm. Um, you know, when, when I could I could pick up the... I could just request, and I could send... I don't know how I'd do it, probably fax, email, whatever, you know, some redundant technology, um, to ask to speak to, I don't know, John Zorn, or, you know, mm. as I say, somebody mm. like that. Um, and you could do that, and and they would talk to you. 
and there was no album to sell and there was no tour to sell but in, in that sense I was using as I say the power of the Herald you know with the biggest newspaper in the country <laughs> right mm, that one mm. um, you know I wanted to talk to those people personally but you know I just thought but they're out there you know there's other people out there in the world who are interested in them too particularly in this country you know because we have a kind of left field view of the world so um, you could do that and then you could write at length and that was the thing you know 2,500 words on Ornette Coleman for Christ's sake mm. you know <laughs> you couldn't you can't do that anymore mm. so I, I just used that leverage and that meant that you were having a conversation you know, you, you could start it as a conversation mm. and you could work your way into it. Whereas now, of course, you get the famous 15 minutes um, and as a phone interview, and I think that's tragic that we've just been reduced to that, you know, the bullshit phone interview. Mm. There are ways of doing a good phone interview, of course, as, as you would well know. Um, and you can look like you're actually sitting in the room there with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's a trick we journalists know. Um, but you know it, it is so reductive now so what what you have to do is you kind of have to get to the point fairly quickly I only even need to know a couple of things before I interview somebody am I going first or am I going last mm. um, I don't know about you but I'm either going one of those two and my preference is last yeah the reason being and you would know this it's very simple. They get talked out. Yeah. Know? They've done all the cliché nonsense, and then you come on last, and your 15 minutes can go forever. Mm. Because if you can engage them, and if you can say something like, so, you know, you've had yeah. a long day of this, <laughs> and I guess you're pretty tired. You know, so is the, is the family there with you? Are you going out for dinner tonight? Or, and you just get a conversation going. Yeah. And you can say, you know, tell me this. What's the most boring and obvious question you've been asked today? You know, is it what's your favourite colours? <laughs> you mm, mm. And you can actually get a conversation going. So my, my inclination is, you know, if I'm doing phone interviews, and honestly, Simon, I'm doing fewer and fewer because yeah, I can't be asked. Yeah, know, for 15 what's minutes. What's in it for you? What, yeah, what, Ultimately. What's, what, yeah, what's in it for and, and anybody for your who readers, reads my website? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I will do... You know, I would do interesting, people I think are interesting. Like, I did an interview, uh, you know, Amjad Ali Khan, mm. who's coming to Womad, he plays Sarah. Nobody knows his name. Nobody cares about that guy. You but, do, though. Well, I care because yeah. he's the greatest Sarod player of the 21st century and of our lifetime. So then that becomes the reason to interview him. <laughs> the reason to interview him is he is, you know, Ravi Shankar is the, you know, Pandit yes. Ravi Shankar is the, you know, godhead of Sita play. Yeah. You know, and Usad Amjad Ali Khan. You know, he was the godhead of Sarod playing. Mm. Now, you know, I'm saying Sarod here, and you know, your listeners have no idea what that means. But <laughs> look it up, yeah. listen to it, and you go, wow, this guy's extraordinary. It's like, you know, the best slide guitar, mm. except Indian with microtones. Yes. So I'm very happy to speak to him. And it's only for 15 minutes, but in that instance, I make the exception because, yeah. you know, sir, you know, yeah, yeah, how exactly. do you do, sir? Are you well today, sir? Yeah, yeah. 76 or something, you know? Yeah. And I get to talk to him. Yeah. And Byung Ki Hwang, you know, I went to Korea, um, South Korea. You know, Byung Ki Hwang is the man who saved traditional Korean music from disappearing. You know, he was the guy, the one mm. guy. And I went to his house and I spoke to him. Now, 
you know, as we said before about these, you know, these website things that we do, you know, for me, um, I don't care yeah. how few people read that. Yeah, yeah. But there it is. It's there. There is the interview yeah. with the great Yong Ki Hai. Yeah. That even Korean people haven't heard of. But one day, yeah. they will go, shit, that's the guy. Yeah. That is the guy who just saved our music from disappearing after 1951. Well, tell me, I mean, you don't have to have the actual gory details at hand, but have you had one of those situations, you know, there are these people that become infamous as you won't get a good word out of them. I'm thinking of people like Lou Reed, sometimes for people, Bob Dylan, these allegedly notoriously prickly, distanced, been asked everything or never wanted to be asked anything kind of characters. Joni Mitchell's another. Do you have an experience with, if not any of those three that I've named, do you have an experience with some of these people that, well, you mentioned Miles Davis, he's a guy who. Ah, um, no, Miles Davis, now that's interesting. I'll get to him in a second. Yeah, yeah. If we've got a moment, because yeah. it's, it's a funny story. Yeah, yeah, no, I um, wasn't going to leave that hanging. I was going to come um, back to that. But Lou, yeah. Lou Reed, I declined twice to interview yes, him. Yeah. Because I don't fucking need that shit. Yeah, in my yeah, life, yeah, frankly. yeah. You know, let's be simple. That was always my thing. I remember yeah. people saying to me, don't need you know, it. you're a Lou Reed fan, would you interview him? And I'm like, God, no. <laughs> Well, Don't you know, that. I went over to Sydney for one of those uh, yeah. festivals over there, and there was Lou and Laurie sitting there, and I yeah. asked Laurie a question. You know, I've got it on record. You know, I taped it. Yeah. I asked Laurie this question about something she's done, and Lou read the grumpy prick that he is. He just came in and said, "Oh, the character's name is Hans." Yeah, well, that's actually what I said, Lou. But you know, fuck you. <laughs> anyway, I went to the show that night where Laurie was doing a presentation. This little old man sat, the little old Jewish guy sat. You know. One row in front of me and probably fell sound asleep and ah, fuck it, it's Lou Reed, you know, so, um, no, him I, him I have actually no time for. Mm. I think that, um, my personal opinion is that I think in 10 years' time we'll be talking a lot more about John Cale than we will ever talk about Lou Reed. Lou Reed, self-styled poet of New York City, some of it is great, but my God, the appalling chasms in some of those albums. Mm -hmm. um, but Miles Davis is a, a you know, it's an odd and funny story, and you know, we need to factor in the marijuana component because that was kind of part of it. Um, I had, um, before he came to play here, um, I had the opportunity to do a phone interview with him. And um, so I get this very long phone number to ring, like, I don't know, 18 to 20 digits mm. or whatever. Mm. Um, and it was a ridiculous time. It was like, I don't know, 5 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. Well, um, a friend of mine came down from Northland the night before. Uh, he literally brought in a clean sack and dumped it on the floor, which made a thud. It was full of dope heads. That's what he was doing. So we sat around and we smoked joints all night. <laughs> I said, oh, I've got to interview Miles Davis tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah. So... Um, I don't know. Um, we just think I'm scared. Yeah. Normal. Yeah. Is it mine or yours? Mine. Nah, go for it. Okay. Yours. So um, we just did. You know, we just sort of said, oh, let's carry on, carry on. And um, my friend had a boat called the Sierra, and that's what we were talking about. His boat. Well, Miles Davis's new album was Siesta. Yeah, yeah. So um, I got up at like five o'clock in the morning. Um, that's the soundtrack to the film, right? Yeah, yeah called yeah. to the phone and just punched in all these digits. And then Miles' voice comes up on the <laughs> I said, 
I thought, now, I'm not going to start with, you know, whatever. Yeah, kind yeah. of blue water. Yeah, I yeah. Said, you know, you, cha- you, you change jazz more than once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you do, sir? You know, and, uh, and I said, you know, I, I understand you don't want to talk about the past. So I would like to talk about, you know, your recent album, Siesta. And I hear this voice go, what the fuck you talking about? Well, I thought, oh shit. Oh no. <laughs> Siesta or Sierra? <laughs> the drugs are still here. And I said, um, uh, no, no, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Um, you know, sir, <laughs> I mean, I've always called older black gentlemen sir. I just think it's respectful. Um, and it just it opens a door. Anyway, I start again. Anyway, I hear this voice going, I love it. You call me back later. And he hangs up. <laughs> and I thought, what the fuck just happened there? Anyway, he had said, call me back later. I said, oh, I'm off to bed, you know. And I got up a couple of hours later and I thought, um, I'm going to have another go. <laughs> and so I rang again. And I got him on the phone and he said, I don't go to leave my mind. That's my way you want and I said, hello, sir. You know, I'm Graham Reed calling from New Zealand. We had a 20 to 25-minute conversation. It was amazing. Wow. We talked about Wynn Marsalis. We talked about how he'd been kicked off Columbia. We talked about his music, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was an extraordinary interview. Wow. Mark Tierney, yes. the fucker, he knows that. <laughs> <laughs> because I sent him... My little cassette, what do you call it, little things? I sent yeah. that to Mark. I said, hey, you might want to sample this for straw people because here's Miles Davis saying, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, you can sample that out. Yeah. When I played it back, though, what I hadn't heard the first time was when I called him the second time, he had said, I was sleeping before. And I'd actually literally woken him up. Yeah. And so then he was, you know, what the fuck are you talking about, but when I called him back later, we got this wow. wonderful conversation. Yeah. And um, then he came here, of course, and played at the St. James. And um, that was the longest music review that the Herald ever run at that time. You know, you used to measure them, measure them in centimetres. Mm. Um, and Colin Hogg and I went along. What would that be, 87 or something? We mm. went along to the show, and the next morning I presented started to write it and write it and I said Colin it's really long he said oh shit it's Miles Davis let's just run it and I think our length was like 20 centimetres and this was 90 centimetres wow it was this massive review Mm. you know talk about the Black Prince's back and then um, there's a place called Java Jive here in Auckland a club and they kind of you know did a painting reproduced it on their wall there I never got a photo of that I'd love to have had one yeah, because it was the Black Prince Reclaims His Throne or something was the headline or whatever. It was the biggest review we'd ever run. Mm. It was massive. But it was detailed, you know, mm. because mm. I was a fan, you know, so... Yeah, it was a, yeah, so... Back from when, when something like that could be a momentous occasion and could be celebrated like it. <laughs> it, it was a momentous yeah. occasion, you know, yeah. people like that, you know. 
that, Louis that, Armstrong, yeah. and Dave Brubeck, and yeah. Coleman, like yeah. in Wellington, you know, all those things. Yeah. They, they are masters. Oh, Sonny Rollins coming Rollins. to Wellington, you know, it's Rollins. like he arrives, he arrives with, um, you know, several histories coming with him, you know, exactly. and, and maybe not everyone in the audience is, is enthusiastically clinging to the fact that at 19 or 20 years of age he was the young guy in the room with people like Charlie Parker and stuff but I am and I know that loads of others are we, we know you know when you look around the room yeah. there's got to be quite a few other people who are in on this and just, there's got to be a few that know way more than I do because yeah. just by the fact that there's 2,000 of us in a room or whatever and then yeah. I go there having talked to him on the phone, so I'm I've got that in my head. Yeah, yeah. So and I know that. You know, when Jay McShan came in, yeah. you know, Jay McShan, you know, he told me stories about Charlie Parker. Yeah. You know, like, wow. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And yet, you know, the Rolling Stones covered Jay McShan songs, mm. and that Audrey Coleman concert that was down in Wellington. You know, I wrote the mm. cover notes to the um, the arts festival program, arts festival program or something. Yeah. Like um, you know, and for my sins, I got a couple of tickets. We went yeah. along and just wow. Oh, yeah, you know. Second time I'd seen him, I saw him in London one time with the, yeah. some master musicians of Jujuku, which, wow, it was amazing. But, um, you know, I'm sitting there watching Ornette Coleman just go, this is extraordinary. And then after two pieces, people are leaving. So what the hell is this? Well, you know, they were older people. You know, they're my age. Yeah. They're really old. And, yeah. But they'd heard about Ornette. They thought, this is the place to go, this is the place to be at. And I thought, oh, this is just noisy, you know, so they left. Well, okay, fine. Mm. More room for me, you know? Yeah. It's fine. But, you know, I, I understand, you know, you, you know, people want to go and see something which is, you know, special in inverted commas. But don't go and see it if you don't kind of get it, you know? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. don't go to be in a so. room with somebody. Do the research. It's never been easier. It's always my thing. It's, that's where I'm at now. It's like, you know, Absolutely. you can look up what they play. And if you don't want to be sport by that, you can read a review that gives you some hints. You can, yeah. you know, you can, you can, fi- you know, you can find out what the most recent album is and be listening to it without leaving your door yeah. or spending any money. So you should be doing that. Like if don't, you don't go and see, you know, Neil Young because you think he's going to sing, you know, Man yeah. Loves a Maid or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's touring with crazy Well, horse. fuck, he went with you know that, that time. <laughs> talk about this a lot. I talk about this a lot with people. That that psychedelic pill show. He, yeah. he actually did play Heart of Gold, and um, people were still unhappy about it. I mean, I was actually more unhappy that he did play that, if anything, because yeah. I was going to Neil Young and Crazy Horse. I got that he was throwing a bit yeah. of a bone, and then people were like, "Why didn't he play more stuff like that?" Because uh, it's a fucking Crazy Horse show. I want, I want to see Crazy Horse. Yeah. yeah, psychedelic pill. Love yeah. that album. Yeah, yeah. play it loud. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. eh? So, so, Simon, you need to wrap. I this do. Up, I, I do. I'm going to wrap this up. I just want to ask. I guess, you know what. What what not so much what have you got left to prove, but what do you got left that you're going to do? I hope you're going to carry on writing for some time. I read your website all the time. I I I'm amazed that you're older than me and you've been doing this for longer than me, and you still find you find lots of albums that I haven't quite got to. You ha- write about albums that I have written about. Um, you write about albums I'm aware of, but I never thought to write about. Um, your output is pretty prolific and I thought I was a prolific writer well you know the thing is that um, I got to an age uh, about 10 years ago where we would go to what they call dinner parties 
you know, and you go to dinner parties because, you know, people get to that age and you go yeah. there and, you know, and what are they playing in the background? Well, it, it's always Nora fucking Jones, you know. Now, <laughs> I like Nora Jones. Yeah, yeah. I, I think her albums are much underrated because she's so easy to dismiss. But to go to one dinner party after another, <laughs> yes. Nora Jones. Yeah. And then, you know, you'd say to somebody who's an accountant, you know, what do you do or something? And they would say, oh, Oh, you're that guy who used to write for the Herald, oh, you know, whatever. And they talk about music. They tried to talk about music, and I'd say, "What, what was the last concert you went to?" It was always Nora Jones. There was never anything <laughs> beyond that. And I just, I, I find that odd. I find yeah. it. I can't conceive of a life where you're not discovering new music, and even if that new music is really old music. And yeah, I there's think, enough old stuff to I think still find. Yeah. Twenty-five years ago, I realised that there was stuff that happened in the 1950s which yep. was actually very interesting. Yeah. And it wasn't just Sinatra, you know, it was yeah. just so many other things were going on. And yeah. It wasn't just weird left-field rock and roll, you know, grave digging yeah. rock. And it just seems to me that, you know, we've got available to us right now on Spotify or CD, whatever we want to do, we've got about 80 years, if not 100 <laughs> yeah. years of music Undiscovered that's to available us. Yep. to be discovered. Mm. And you know, I, I, I and that's also not an argument for new stuff to not happen. Like, Absolutely not. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. You, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you put it in its place. I don't mm. like this idea that everything coexists on the same plane. Mm, mm. No, no, stuff happened in history. Yeah, you know, that happened at that time. You know, so rock and roll happened because of the time, not yes, the, yeah, and it's not all coexistent. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of my university students seem <laughs> to think that you know, anything before their lifetime all happens simultaneously. But, you know, I, I've got a wind-up gramophone downstairs. I buy 78s. You know, I'll listen yeah. to a 78. Um, even if it's just some comedy song. Well, that's what people listen to mm. in 1932. Well, I'm lucky. I don't have to listen to that bullshit. You know, but I've heard it. Mm. Uh, over there on that chair, I've got a pile of 45s, which I inherited from some radio station or something. Um, and I'm going through it. And I'm going to look at it and go, oh, okay. Dolly Parton, well, I always listen to Dolly Parton. It'd probably crack Dolly Parton, you know. Mm. But there's interesting stuff in there, and I'll give it to my pal who's got a, you know, <laughs> got a big jukebox, can play all those 45s. It just seems to me the, the possibilities are infinite, mm -hmm. and I don't understand why it's like travel, you know, like it's infinite possibility. You don't have to go to Fiji, you know, <laughs> you can go somewhere else in this world. I mean, I will go. I go to Womad. Of course, I will. I mean, I love those places because it's the sheer discovery of it all. And I just think, well, isn't that what life's about? You know. Mm. You know, I, I've never, I've never finished David Copperfield. And when I get really old, I probably will. And at the end of it, I go, what a boring, what a shit that was. <laughs> <laughs> but I will have achieved it. <laughs> And I wish that one day I could actually get through all that goddamn boring Lord of the Rings and Hobbit bullshit that Peter Jackson inflicted on us. But I am reading the book about the making of it. So, you know, I'm still open to the possibility. You know, music is infinite. It's an infinite possibility and we, we can barely scrape the surface. You know, start with Moroccan oud music or, you know, go to South African gumboot jive and just keep working. It's all out there.